1: The show today, of course, it is uh, the day after Memorial Day. I hope you all had a great long weekend. Of course, this is also the beginning of June. We kick off a whole new month. It's also the end of the second quarter. Wow, lots of stuff going on this month. Uh, (laughs) Typically speaking, though, uh, June tends to be a more sloppy month for markets. We don't tend to do a whole lot. We're now getting into the really into the depth of summer here, right? The dog days of summer, June, July, August. Uh, June tends to be kind of sloppy. July a little better. August not so much. So, again. Just really, uh, you know, kind of, you know, uh, an opportunity, as we've talked about before, just to kind of relax, sit back, let the markets kind of do their thing here over the next couple of months. Don't really expect a lot of fireworks. Uh, kind of the big events on the horizon right now, of course, is, you know, whether or not that the administration can pass an, an infrastructure deal now. Uh, The White House is giving the the Republicans a week to reach a bipartisan agreement on the infrastructure deal. Otherwise, they're going to try to go it alone. The interesting thing there is, is that they're going to have to try to figure out a way legislatively to push this through using the reconciliation process, which is part of the budget um that's going to be kind of an interesting you know challenge here um, because now this infrastructure bill includes a lot of things that typically aren't part of the budget so again trying to include this in the budget process um that has already kind of kind of on a retroactive basis is going to be an interesting uh, legal challenge I, I would certainly suspect that there's going to be some legal challenges if they try to do this Um, But that would only require them, of course, to have a a majority vote, right? So all Democrats plus Kamala Harris, they could pass an infrastructure bill using reconciliation. If they're not able to do it under reconciliation, it's going to require 60 votes, which also requires Republicans to get on board. So this may be a very interesting challenge here uh, over the course of the next couple of months. Of course, we'll be keeping a watch on this. But this is really kind of where the next hope is for more stimulus for the economy now. Um, originally, this bill was 2.3 trillion. It's uh, the White House proposal is 1.7. The Republicans are at 928 billion. So, we're still talking about a lot of money, but big gap between 1.7 trillion and and 938 billion. So, again, where this kind of works out over the next few months will be interesting to watch just not only from the actual process of trying to get a bill passed but also where this will actually impact the economy as stimulus is starting to fade out of the economy we're already starting to see savings uh, as a percent of disposable personal income begin to fall we're also seeing the amount of disposable income personal income beginning to decline as a lot of these stimulus payments are now running out that's been a big push for spending on services and goods and other things that have driven up recent price inflation and that's been the really big topic here as of late you know it's all about inflation there's a there's a large camp of people right now that believe inflation is now a permanent thing and this inflation is going to last for a very long time and we're going back to the 70s Um, there's another large group of people that believe that this inflation is transient including the fed and that would be the part that, well, once we see this kind of stimulus run through the system, demand is going to fall. And as demand falls, prices will come down with it. Because, again, while we have a what, one of the big factors behind the inflation surge right now is the big supply chain shortage, right? We just don't simply have enough stuff to meet the current demand. So we gave all these people money to spend, but we didn't have the supply chain in place. So very quickly, we ate up all the inventory and now there's a shortage of goods and services available to meet that demand. But that demand is going to weaken, which will allow supply to catch up with that demand. So, again, a lot of these bottleneck issues that currently exist that are causing these prices and these inflated prices will begin to kind of work themselves out over time. You know, this is also kind of one of the other things you don't see a lot of companies rushing out to increase supply couple of reasons for that one they know that this supply demand imbalance is temporary because of the stimulus and two why are they going to produce a bunch more supply when they can capture higher prices so again part of this is sticky um, and and we certainly shouldn't dismiss that and so for people that are in the camp that inflation is going to be higher for longer there is a case to be made for that because there isn't a rush right now to meet that supply which or, or to meet that demand. So that means that prices may be sticky for a little bit longer than we expect. On the other side of the camp, of course, as I said, there's this, these overriding deflationary pressures that we simply have an economy that is being supported by debt at this point, And whether or not we can get more stimulus is really what's driving the hope that there's going to be more push in the economy. If we don't get that stimulus passed through, then, of course, weaker economic growth is going to show up later this year and also remember we have a lot of year-over-year effects right now as we continue to look back and, and 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 talk about this time last year we were in the midst of the economic shutdown so there was so when we start looking at year-over-year growth rates compared to last year yes we have a very big base effect that's going on because we had basically no growth and <laughs> and the second quarter of last year We've got growth going on this year. So big comparison there, but that's going to fade as we get into third quarter. All those numbers are going to start to contract very quickly. So again, lots of things to consider here um, and think about as you start kind of preparing and and looking for the rest of this year moving out as to what to expect. But a couple of things to talk about with the markets this morning. Markets are going to open up eh, a little flat. I mean, we're not going to have a big boomer uh, morning in the markets. The Dow's up a little bit stronger this morning because of the components, uh, as we've talked about before this kind of a Dow day where uh, energy and financials look to be performing better than some of the other areas of the markets. But, you know, we've talked about recently this money flow buy signal back positive on the S&P. We're about two thirds of the way through that signal now. Uh, S&P is back towards all time highs. It's kind of what we expected to happen. Um, when we started talking about getting this buy signal in place, we said, well, you know, we'll have a good shot here at getting back to all-time highs. Almost there. Um, very likely try to get there today. But again, as we talked about before, there's not a lot of upside here. June tends to be a fairly weak month, fairly quiet month, not a lot that goes on. So again, we're probably going to eat up a lot of the signal here. Over the course of this week, as we kind of move further into the month of June now, as we as we get to the other side of this, the risk is still. Uh, out there that we're gonna have a bigger correction sometime this summer, somewhere between five and ten percent. Certainly well within the context of norms. We've been talking about this for a while, but this daily c- signal will wind or will basically wind up linking up with the weekly sell signal. And that's where gen- generally you get a bit more sloppiness, a pickup in volatility in markets, and you get these little bit bigger corrections. But looking through some of the other markets this morning as well, of course, keeping a watch on interest rates, interest rates continue to remain fairly weak here after they spike up earlier this uh, last year on expectations of all this stimulus and growth that we were going to get Uh, Interest rates continued really just to uh, really not go much of anywhere and still suggest that economic growth is going to be weaker later this year than we are currently seeing rates right now. Um, Looking at emerging markets, of course, uh, that's been improving here lately. But again, that signal uh, very extended there on emerging markets. So again, probably more towards the end of this run on emerging markets, small cap stocks, those type of things at the moment. Um, They've been underperforming and would expect them to continue to underperform probably most of the summer. Uh, Again, you know, kind of the shift back towards, you know, larger cap stocks and and more of the safety type names uh, in the markets over the next month, at least, uh, would certainly not be surprising. But one of the things we'll talk about, though, is, you know, sell signals and markets. As we come back uh, from the break, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, do sell signals work? Uh, you know, one of the things has been for most people is that I just don't worry about it. Just buy the market because, well, as long as the Fed's there, stocks just, stock prices just go up. So, you know, sell signals really have no value, right? Well, we'll talk about why they do and why they're important to pay attention to when managing risk in your portfolio. We'll talk about that when we come back from the break. It's also an article on our website today, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back.
0: to The Real Investment Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon realinvestmentadvice.com The Real Investment Show
1: And welcome back this morning It's uh, 6.17 on this uh, Tuesday already Already shooting through the week here <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! I know right it 's almost the weekend. hang out uh, so a couple of things uh, I wanted to talk about this morning is is one our technically speaking post out is, is out this morning it 's on the website talking a little bit about cell signals. Um, the reason I, I bring this up is i 've you know have been talking about. You know, our kind of our money flow indicators that we, you know, track here on the show. And we talk about, you know, hey, you know, right now it suggests that, you know, market, you know, risk is positive or market risk is negative and kind of helps work through these periods of volatility that typically kind of pick up in the markets. And and, and it helps reduce risk and overall portfolio structures as you're trying to grow money over time. And, you know, we, we talk about, you know, managing money. Right. And, you know, often I equate that back to gardening because it's, it's you know, gardening is a very simple example, but it works very well when, you know, looking at a portfolio, which is, you know, like a garden, you have to plant your seeds. Right. So you make your investments. You've got to water it. You've got to add money to it from time to time. You've got to fertilize it. Um, but you know what typically people forget is is that once they see their start their garden start to grow right they get all excited and it's like wow this is going to grow and as it starts to work they forget to do some very important things to their to their investment garden and they work just like a real garden Which is that if you don't eventually, you know, go in and and weed the garden on a regular basis, you're going to wind up having the weeds kind of overtake the portfolio. And that's where we see this most importantly is where people wind up in a stock that's not working well. And so they go, well, I'm just going to I'm just going to forget about that one for now. And we'll put it over to the side. And then when it comes back, you know, I'll sell it. And then another one stops performing. So they put it over there as well. And then another one stops performing. They put it over in the in the basket, and then before you know it, the basket makes up more than your winners, and it starts to drag on the overall performance. And very much like not weeding your garden, if you don't weed a garden, it'll eventually start to choke out your plants. The other thing that we don't do in an investment portfolio nearly enough is to go in and harvest what we grow, right? So it's great, you know, I, I, I plant a bunch of you know plants in my garden they grow up you know i produce carrots or tomatoes or whatever it is that i'm growing in my garden and if i don't go harvest them they'll the 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 bounty right the fruit the vegetables whatever it is i'm growing will rot on the vine and then what was the benefit of growing it and this is the same thing with portfolios you know we and it doesn't mean that we go you know uh, people tend to forget that when i talk about harvesting right they assume that i mean sell the whole position, right? It's like, oh, we're going and we're taking profits out of Apple or, you know, uh, you know, ExxonMobil or whatever it is that we own. And people assume that when we talk about selling some, that we sold the whole position. And that's not what harvesting means or taking profits. Um, you know, when you go to harvest your tomatoes from your tomato garden, you don't go out and Tear the whole plant out of the ground. You just pull the fruit off the vine so that the vine can continue to produce more fruit in the future. Right. And that's kind of, you know, and all this kind of works very well with managing your investment portfolio. And things that we just don't do nearly enough is just to pay some basic attention to the metrics of managing a healthy portfolio over time. Now, just as with anything, it doesn't mean that you can't run into a bad, you know, bad patch, right? Um, or that you don't make mistakes. That happens. But having a process or some type of discipline and managing your portfolio can lead you to have a healthier outcome over time. And that's kind of really kind of what the tenet of the article is today: is that you know we talk a little bit about. The idea of having these sell signals, but I get questions like, well, in this market, you know, because of the Fed, the Fed's just, you know, in, injecting the market with all this liquidity, you know, sell signals are just useless because the market just goes up. Well, yeah, you could say that, but that's not really the case. There are still things in the market that don't work from time to time, and areas of the market that you don't want to be in, there's areas of the market you do want to be in. And kind of watching for that rotation and understanding how these things are operating helps you make those adjustments. Again, we're not, you know, going out and tearing up a tomato garden to go plant it with a carrot garden. Right? It's just, you know, we're making small changes to portfolios. We're not completely selling one portfolio and buying another one. But you know, this is and but this is really what it's this comes down to. And and Bloomberg. I got this. Uh, somebody tweeted me, and we're talking. I was talking about this idea of sell signals in the portfolio. And somebody tweeted me this article from Bloomberg that was basically kind of an interesting premise. It says if you bailed on stocks and ran away from them because markets were extended. You paid the price in a testament to a straight up trajectory of stocks. This is a quote from Bloomberg that virtually all signals that told investors to do anything but buy have done them a disservice this year. So in other words, what they're saying is, is that if, if there was any signals like uh, overbought conditions or, you know, large deviations from long term means, you know, those type of things that if you had sold stocks and, and trim back exposure, then you would have paid the price. You would have underperformed. And the example they use is is that every time a, a portfolio got two standard deviations away from their mean, which is, you know, just simple explanation, that's kind of like stretching rubber band as far as you can, that you sold everything and went short the markets. Now, this is the important concept, right? As we were talking about a moment ago, when managing your portfolio, you don't go out and, and, and you know, till up your tomato garden and <laughs> plant a carrot garden, right? You don't do that. You go out and you, you harvest the tomatoes, right? But you leave the plants. And what Bloomberg's suggesting is, is that, well, if every time the markets got overbought, that you went out and you completely ripped up your tomato garden and, and planted a carrot garden, that you would have done yourself a disservice. And I agree with that. You would have. That's not portfolio management. Right. That's 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 an attempt to time markets and market timing is fine. There's people that that attempt to do this, but it's not successful over time because you can't replicate the success of a market timing metric every single time. And when you lose the losses of trying to be all in or all out are too great, you lose too much. But the, the you know, the important thing here is that that when looking at. Those types of analysis that are all in or all out on some basic metric, you know, that's investing in hindsight, and that works great in history, right? If we could all invest in hindsight, we just all go back to 1990 and buy Apple and be done with it, right? We don't get that opportunity. So, when we when we talk about managing risk, we're talking about making small adjustments, and it's important though to understand that. There's also a very big difference between what the media talks about in terms of performance and what matters to you. And this is the problem with a lot of financial plans. It's a lot of problems with expectations. We all have this idea that markets just generate 6% annually over time, and I'm just going to get 6% every year on my money. And that's not really the case. That's not really how markets work. And that's also not how money works for individuals either. And this is why there's always a, a a a rather large disappointment between expected outcomes and real outcomes. And you know this is you know this is just the basic reality of markets since 2000, from 2000 to present. The markets had a 4.96 percent annualized rate of return. Now that's a full percentage point. That's 20 percent lower than the six percent rate of return that everybody was promised. So already, if your plan was based on six percent since 2000, you're already behind the behind the curve. And think about that. That's 21 years ago. That's 21 years you have not achieved that six percent rate, rate rate of growth. And more importantly. That rate of growth was zero in 2013. So, all the gains over the last 21 years came in just the last six, seven years in particular. Now, if you happen to start investing at the peak of the markets in 2007, your rate of return has been 8% so far. So, that's been okay. But that's only one half. of the cycle, right? We've had this major bull market cycle over the last you know, decade. And so we still have the other half of the cycle to go, which suggests that these returns going forward because of current valuations and a lot of other metrics are going to be lower. But even with that, because of the issue that happened in 2009, uh, sorry, 2008, Investors who were banking on a six percent annualized rate of return only got back to their six percent annualized compounded rate of return last year. After being in the markets from 2007 to present, last year they finally got back to their investing goal of six percent annual. That's just how you know important these corrections and markets can be and, and what it does in terms of setting back investors from their long-term goals. When we come back, we'll just talk a little bit about what you should do in terms of a market where risks are clearly mounting and how to navigate that in terms of your expectations and what you should, should do over the course of the next few years we'll, we'll 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 come back and talk some more about that on the other side of this break I'm your host Lance Roberts don't go away
0: when nothing gets me down you got it tough I've seen it tough around when I know baby just how you feel you got to roll, roll, roll with the punches and get to watch Why can't you see? Here, I got my back, the Real Investment Show. You could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long term care. Long term care. Register. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show.
1: And welcome back to the show this morning. So I wanted to pick up on this... Uh, conversation where, again, you know, this idea that, you know, sell signals don't matter. You just got to be invested in the markets. And, you know, that's all I can, that's that's all you have to do, right? You'll be fine. You know, the problem is always this. It depends on where you start. You know, if we go back to 2000 as an example, you know, there's a, an interesting reality that, that really kind of occurs. And when you start thinking about where we were back in 2000, right, this is the very much where we are today. Lots of optimism. You know, it's easy in hindsight. We look back, it's like, well, 2000, that was the peak of the market. Yeah. But back then, if you were in the midst of it, it was this market is just going to keep going on forever. This is the new paradigm. I mean, this is the internet. This changes everything, right? Same thing with the fax machine back in the 80s. <laughs> but this was the new thing. So let's you know so let's run a little bit of hypothetical here and assume today is now 2000 because there's a lot of similarities. But for somebody saving for their retirement, and this is a great example of this, right? They were banking on, they had $100,000, they were invested in the markets, and they were told that they were going to have a 6% annual compounded rate of return, and they're 30 years old. So, you know, I'm sorry, they're, yeah, they're 30 years old, right? Let's just use 30, right? You know, as as they start to move forward, though, this becomes more of a challenge because all of a sudden they get swept up into this bear market then they lose half their money so now they've got to build that back now you know here they are you know in 2009, 2010 they're now 10 years older and as they got 10 years older now there's another you know assumption that this market is just going to go up forever here we are and then boom have another big correction Sets them back again. So the differential between what actually occurred in their portfolio and what happened with this promise of 6% annualized rates returns were vastly different. But we all kind of go through this cycle, right? You know, in 1980, the baby boomer generation was working. They were, you know, investing. They were saving, And they were right in the middle of, you know, that 80s and 90s bull market, right? So when I get to, you know, 2000, I'm now 50 years old. I've I've got this huge boomer market over the last 20 years behind me, right? So coming out of that 1974 bear market valuations were single digits. I had a 20-year bull market run, basically, a few little hiccups along the way. But for the most part, this kind of 20-year run that really kind of bolstered a lot of the financial assets of, of boomers. But here they are. Now they're 50 years old in 2000 and 2002. Cuts their market, their, their valuations in half, right? Then they get it back by 2008. So now they're, you know, 57, 58, They lose half their money again. You know, from 58 to 63, they get back to even because in 2013, they finally got their money back again. So here they are. They're back now to where they were in 2000. But now they're 63 years old, right? They are right on the cusp of filing for Social Security. And this is why, you know, people, when people talk about investing in the markets, they go, you know, if you want to build wealth, you got to invest in the markets. Well, if that really worked, why is it that 80% of people can't come up with a $500 paycheck, right? Or or $500 funds to pay for an emergency, I mean. You know, it hasn't worked well for most people. And then there's the whole litany of mistakes that people make, um, you know, in, in terms of investing and they come up with all these rationalizations well I don't want to sell that because I've got a huge loss or I don't want to sell it because I've got a huge gain I don't want to pay the taxes on it okay fine here's the problem if you don't pay the taxes right so you have let's say you have a huge gain on something everybody's so afraid of paying taxes I don't want to pay the taxes if I sell it i got to pay taxes that's a good thing means you made money A great way to solve your tax problem is to hold on to a position that turns into a loser and then sell it, and that way you don't have gains on it, right? You don't have any taxes to pay. The idea of not selling something because you're going to pay taxes on it is the worst excuse ever for not selling a position. Not selling something that's a loss because you don't want to take a loss is also a psychological loser, The only reason you don't wanna sell it as a loss is because you don't wanna admit that you made a bad decision. That's a you thing. Here's the important thing to, to remember. The value of your portfolio is the value of your portfolio any given day of the week. It doesn't matter whether it's at a loss or at a gain, that is the value, period. So it doesn't matter if you sell something at a gain or a loss, it is just a function of, are you doing the best thing for your money? And again. This is the idea. I don't want to harvest the tomatoes out of my garden because they're so pretty on the vine and maybe they'll just keep growing. Eventually, they're going to rot on the vine. Something will happen and you will lose money. Same thing goes if you don't eventually weed your garden. If you don't sell the losers, eventually the losers are going to take over your garden. That's just a function of time. And this is just the psychology that we have to battle as investors. But that's the hard part about investing. If investing was easy, everybody would do it, and everybody would be very successful. But the things that people worry about are the very things that keep you from being successful long-term. So here's some things that you do need to pay attention to, right? So here's kind of the important parts. Investing isn't a competition, there's no prizes for winning, but there's heavy penalties for losing. Nobody's going to come. If you beat the index one year, your portfolio's up 10%, the index is up nine. Nobody's going to show up at your door and give you a trophy for beating the index some year. <laughs> right? It's just That doesn't happen. It's great that you made money. Right. That's the whole purpose of why you're investing. But there's no prizes in in trying to beat and beat it. Right. There's not a you're not in competition with your neighbor. You're not in competition with your friends. You're not in competition with anybody. The whole purpose of investing is to just try to grow your assets at a rate that will outpace inflation over time. That's all your goal is. Remember, what you're investing is your savings. You've saved a bunch of money and the whole purpose of investing at the end of the day is to make sure your savings are growing faster than the rate of inflation so you have the same purchasing power parity in the future that you have today. Once you start taking on risk above and beyond the rate of inflationary growth, you are putting capital at risk of loss. So chasing some random benchmark index, it has nothing to do with your time horizon, your asset allocation, your goals, your financial objectives. An index pays no taxes. It has no cash. It has no real positions. It gets benefits from substitution and buybacks. You don't. You know, there's vast differences between that unicorn we call an index and what your portfolio actually does in real life. And trying to chase some random phantom index is what leads investors over and over and over again in making very big mistakes. Investing isn't a competition. Remove the benchmarks. Reduce the competition, the the competitive edge that you have. Focus on what's important. Inflation is your benchmark. You know, going back to talking about big gains and big losses. Emotions are the biggest problem that investors have overall with investing. And the the biggest mistakes they make overall, hurting psychology, doing what everybody else is doing, um, anchoring where you're focused on some previous price or something. As soon as my portfolio gets back to $100,000, I'll sell it and I'll stop investing, right? That's anchoring. That's what it was at one point in time. Doesn't matter. Where you are today is where the value of your portfolio is. Those emotional mistakes create bigger problems over time. The only investments that you can buy and hold are things that provide a return of principal function to them. You can buy a CD and hold it till maturity because you will get your money back plus your interest. You can buy a bond because you will get your money back and your interest. Treasury bonds. Those are investments that you can truly buy and hold. Anything else, you have to manage the risk of it. You know, as we've talked about here before on the show, there's three things that you can get out of every investment. You can either get return, liquidity, or safety, but you can't have all three. You can have two of the three in any investment you make, but you can never get all three. You want to be in stocks? That's great. You've got liquidity and return, but no safety. You want to invest in bonds? Awesome. You've got safety. You've got, re- you've got return, but you've got no liquidity. So you have to measure, monitor, and choose between the mix of those three things in your portfolio and what's important to you over time. Get by the website. Our article is on the website now. It's talking about sell signals being useless in markets. There's a whole list of things and guidelines in there um, about managing your money better over time. You know, why market valuations matter, only the extremes, et cetera, all in there right now on the website realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll come back, wrap up the show. Stick around. Don't go away.
0: daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at Real Investment advice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care june 24th at noon real investment the real investment show a modern day warrior me me, try to taste on soy
1: Welcome back to the show this morning, six forty-seven. <laughs> you know, it's just funny. This uh, one thing we're finding out about this uh, world of lockdowns and things mm-hmm. that we're now, you know, hopefully getting past. Right, starting to reopen the economy. Texas is doing very well, by the way, after opening back up. You know, this is. Um, you know, the whole idea was we needed to protect everybody. So we shut down the economy. And now you take a look at Texas after they've reopened and, uh, you know, economy's doing very well. We're not having a big surge in, in vaccine, you know, um, COVID cases, hospitalization rates are still falling and and the economy's doing much better here. And, you know, people are getting back to life. And, and this may be a good thing because, you know, these Zoom meetings have just kind of run amok, you know. You know, it was one thing to have, you know, try to organize a group of people in an office to have a meeting, right? Trying to get everybody's calendars set up and you'd sit down and have a meeting and you kind of knock stuff out and, and go on. But, you know, with Zoom meetings, it's real quick just to jump on. It's like, hey, let's have a Zoom meeting. And, and all of a sudden you've got 10 meetings in a day because, you know, everybody in your office wants to have a meeting about something. just you know, justify time, et cetera? You know, the problem is that runs into, you know, you know, having all these Zoom meetings runs afoul of other you know issues especially when you're at home working, you know those type of things I mean you know people want to just jump on a zoom call and you're right in the middle of getting dressed or something you know it's you know stuff happens. I joke about that because for the second time, a Canadian parliament politician has been caught naked during a zoom meeting <laughs> <laughs> had to happen sooner or later <laughs> no maybe once, but twice I mean. <laughs> You know, there is a a kind of a rule. You should dress for your Zoom meeting, but, you know.
0: Emphasis on dress.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I don't know how you get caught twice. And at what point do you not remember to turn your (laughs) – put a piece of tape over your camera if you don't want it to record you? You know, it kind of reminds me of Terry Bradshaw in that movie – uh, failure to Launch with Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, Do yes. you remember that movie? Yes. <laughs> so if you don't know the movie, uh, Matthew McConaughey is living at home with Terry Bradshaw. And I forgot who played the wife. Um, she's a—I uh, think it was maybe—it wasn't Bette Midler. It was uh, um, the lady that played in Misery. What was her name? Ah, her name's trying to tip my tongue. So they, they're trying to get Matthew McConaughey to move out of the house. And— the whole reason that they're wanting to move out of the house is because Terry Bradshaw's you know, empty nest, right? And Terry Bradshaw wants to have his naked room so he can have a room that he can just roam around naked in all day. And apparently that's this—what was her name? Kathy Bates. Yes, Kathy Bates. Misery. Yes. How, how can you forget yes. that? that? That movie scarred me for life. I mean— And Fried Green Tomatoes. <laughs> no, not that one. But that she's didn't in That didn't scar one. me. Yeah, she was in that one, too. But Misery? Yep. Yes. Yeah, that scarred me. I watched that one way too young in life. <laughs> <laughs> that has stuck with me ever since. <laughs> that one scene in Misery, mm-hmm. that's all you need mm-hmm. to know. Uh, anyway, if you haven't watched it, there's a new, there's a movie for you to watch this weekend. Watch Misery, and then don't blame me for it.
0: <laughs> Great method of birth control.
1: Uh, yeah, I guess so. I'm not sure, but Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure how you got there, but okay. Well, one thing okay, leads Brent. to another. I'm not, I'm not sure how you got there. Okay, but okay. boomer. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, just trying to, to, you know, as we kind of wrap up the show, you know, there's, you know, we're trying to get, you know, the economy back open. People are trying to figure this whole thing out, and and you know, this is going to be important as as we move forward. And it's interesting. <laughs> Depending on what state you live in, you know, people are reacting differently. The California restaurant owner is tacking on a $5 fee for customers who refuse to wear their mask. Or sorry, refuse to remove their mask. I have to read that right. So if you go into his restaurant and you keep your mask on, he's going to charge you an extra $5 fee. I don't know why, but okay. And it's California. So uh, Florida Rock Concert is selling $18 tickets for people who are vaccinated. If you want to go to the same concert and you're unvaccinated, it's $1,000 for the ticket. I'm not sure how that's going to fly legally. I think you're going to run into some problems. But this is, this is the whole point. I mean, everybody's trying to figure out how do we get people back in the office? How do we get people back to work? How do we, you know, you know kind of get back to some normalcy? And part of the problem is, has been, you know, this, this kind of media deluge over this, you know, commentary over the virus, you know, first of all, it was, it was passed from, you know, it was naturally occurring and, you know, theories about the Wuhan lab were, you know, conspiracy. And now all of a sudden, it's not so much conspiracy anymore. I mean, it, you know, it's just, you know, people are trying to figure all this stuff out. You know, where are we? And this is, you know, this is going to impede that process of eventually of reopening. But, you know, you've got to get people over their fears of going back to work. Um, and potentially, you know, if you're not vaxxed and you go back to work, you know, are you going to be, you know, ostracized by your office if you're not vaccinated? Or if you are vaccinated and you go back to work and there's other people in your office that are vaccinated, how are you going to you're going to segregate the office? What are you going to do? I mean, there's all these issues, which is going to take some time to work through. Eventually, we'll get there, right? I mean, we don't do this with the flu. You know, every year when you have the flu, you have between 80 and 100,000 deaths from the flu every year. Right? People go with their flu shot. Some people get a flu shot. Some people don't get a flu shot. But, you know, we don't segregate offices and lockdown economies over the flu every year. Eventually, this, you know, COVID as a function will become another flu. And what I mean by that is, is that we'll eventually get to that cycle to where people will just go get their annual vaccinations. Um, People that don't will just get sick and we'll all just kind of move on with life. Right. We'll get back to work. We'll get back to normalcy, but it's going to take some time. And in the process of that, kind of getting back to normalcy at some point. We're going to figure out and be able to look back and say, okay, those were good decisions about what we did And these were bad decisions Was locking down the economy A good decision long term Did it actually wind up Saving that many lives Did it improve economic You know prosperity Over time You know was that a good decision To make then And we'll know that in history when, And ten years from now We'll look back And be able to evaluate that Right now you can make Your own assumptions But you know it's too soon It's only been a year And, you know, off the cuff, we can certainly make some early assumptions, but 10 years from now, we'll look back and go, yeah, that was a good decision, that was a bad decision. Where we are right now with inflation, as an example, lots of concerns over short-term inflation. Are they transitory, are they not? We'll know that in a few years. We'll look back and say, yeah, that, was, that inflationary spike was clearly transient. It was caused by all the stimulus that we put into the economy. And as soon as ABC happened, then that went away. Or we'll look back and go, yeah, that was the beginning of the end. And we had another big, massive inflationary spike like we saw back in the 70s. And here's all the, you know, we had double back-to-back recessions because of the inflationary spike. And there was a major market crash, you know, whatever it was, right? We'll be able to look back and evaluate these things. But the problem is, is hindsight's easy. And this is what we're talking about with sell signals and managing money, right? You don't have that benefit of hindsight now. We can all look back and, and over the last year and say, This is what's happened. and This is where we are. But you've got to make investing decisions looking out into the future. You can't invest on what's already happened. You've got to to try to figure out where this is all going to wind up 12 months from now, 24 months from now, five years from now. And making long-term projections are very risky in this type of market. I mean, yeah, there's things that we know about valuations. High valuations lead to low future returns. We know that anecdotally and historically by looking at the data. But doesn't mean that there's going to be low returns every year. It just means that you have one or two really bad years. But the problem is you don't know when those one or two bad years are going to come along over the next decade. So trying to invest that way today, say, well, I'm just going to be since since returns are going to be two percent over the next decade, I'm just going to sit in cash. That doesn't. That's not going to work for you. You'll lose out to inflation. So this is why, you know, having a method or a discipline of managing risk or exposure is critically important because you can't predict the future. You don't know what's going to happen, but you've got to manage for what could be a potential in the future. And right now you've got 12 years of a bull market behind you, right, roughly. So it's been easy over the last decade. About 80% of the people in the markets today have never been in the markets before, right? These are a lot of new people that have never been through a bear market. So they're in the process of going, well, this is great. I just throw money in and it just goes up. So I've got these huge gains. I can't sell them because I don't want to pay taxes. Terrible, terrible reason not to take money off the table. You can just do some simple math here, right? Let's say the market's up 100%. Let's say it's up 200%. Let's say that since 2009, it's up 400%, right? It is. So you've got a 400% gain in your portfolio right now. You know, take a 50% loss on that. How much do you give up over the last decade? You know, percentages are very deceiving. But money is money. And understanding and managing risk going forward is far more th- its far more than just about trying to gain bigger returns. Managing the risk will lead to better returns over time if you can avoid the downturns. And the problem is, is that none of us know whenever, when those downturns will ever occur. We just know that eventually they will. wraps up the show for today. Be back uh, on the website now, of course, is our latest article on... Uh, Kind of managing risk and rewards about do sell signals actually work in the markets anymore? They do. And you just need to figure out how and when and how to apply them to your portfolio. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
0: Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com.
1: It's a rich